Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're going to talk about the P word tonight, okay? So um, the big P word, you're like, what's the P word? Um, it's, it's the word predestination, okay? Because you cannot do a study in the book of Romans and not come across the big word predestination. And so let me just preface my remarks by saying what I'm going to share tonight is very controversial. There's, there's different views in church history. There's been different views throughout the past 2,000 years. Um, I've got my views. Um, I've got my convictions. I don't want to impose those convictions on you, but I want to try to clearly let the Scripture uh, teach what I think the Scripture teaches. And so um, what I normally do when we, when we get to this passage of Scripture is um, some people often say this, I don't believe that the Bible teaches predestination. I don't believe it. I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe the Bible teaches it. I, I don't believe that that's even a thing in the Bible. So what I would have to say to that person is the Bible uses the word predestination. So you can't say you don't believe in predestination if the Bible uses the word. The question is, which view do you hold and how do you view predestination? What's your your basis for God's predestinating work? So the question that we're going to talk about tonight, not just predestination, but this is the elephant in the room that comes up when we come to these passages of Scripture. The question is, how does God predestinate what does it mean? Okay, so before we actually get to Romans chapter 8, I want us to turn to Ephesians, okay, because I want to show you just a couple of places where the word shows up, okay, because some people would say, you know, I've had some people over the years say, you know, show me the Bible where it says predestination. I show it to them. They're like, I never knew that word was there. So I'm like, um, have you read the New Testament? So, um, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, looking at verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1, I know I freaked you all out because you were in Romans and then I made you go to Ephesians, but we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Two words are used in that passage. What's the first word? God chose and God predestined. When did God do this, according to this passage of Scripture? Before the world was created. So God's choice, or your choice, however you want to view it, because we'll look at both views, both views, regardless of of which view you land on, it happens before time. Okay, so it happened in eternity past, before the world was even created, the choice God made. Now, how did he make that choice? That's the question. Now, you go down to verse 11, and we see the word again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, 
one of the things that we have to realize when we talk about this subject, regardless of whether predestination is on the table or not, that scripture tells us that all things work according to the counsel of God's will. So what are all things? All things. Is there anything that's not an all thing? Okay, so I just wanted to show you in Ephesians, before we get to Romans, that that terminology is used. Okay, let's just go to another place in the Bible. We'll get to Romans, but I just want to show you. Go to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 4. Just in case there are some that say, you know what, I don't believe in predestination. I'm, I'm showing you, I've shown you two verses already that use the exact word and then the word chose. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has, what? Chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in words, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So we've got the word again. He has, what? Chosen. So whether how you deal with the subject, you've got to deal with the wording in the Bible that it says God made a choice or God predestined, or God did this. Okay, let's go to one other place, because you're like, well, that may just be Paul. Let's, let's go to Peter. Does Peter teach it? Peter, verse, ch- chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. He uses a little different terminology, but he does address it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to whom are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and with the sprinkling of the blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter introduces a word here, foreknowledge, okay, or foreknowing. So let me just ask you a question. What does foreknowledge mean? to know beforehand. Can we all agree that God knows everything before it happens? Okay. All right. I think all Christians believe that, that God knows what's going to happen before it happens. Okay. So with those just sprinkling of text, let's go to Romans chapter 8, and let's look at the golden chain of redemption. This has been called the golden chain by theologians because of the grammar, because of the way that the chain is held together. If one link in the chain is removed, then the chain ceases to be a chain, and there's a break in the chain, okay? Where we ended up a few weeks ago was in Romans 8.28, which we determined that that is not a promise for all people. That's a promise only for who? Christians. And how do we know they're Christians? Because it says those who are called and those who love Jesus. So let's put another word up here. Let's just put some of these words up here. Called. So does God call people to salvation? Yes. Does God predestine? Yes. Does God foreknow people? Does God choose people? Yes. The big question becomes, how does it all play out? Because those words are in the Bible. Okay, so let's read the text, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt to show you both views that have traditionally been throughout history, and then I'm going to show you biblically why I think one view is more biblical than the other, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm leaning towards that, that bias, but um, here we go. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he, where's, what's the word there? Foreknew. 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's write the words in the chain, okay? Because Paul gives a progression. Now these aren't an exhaustive list of everything that relates to salvation, but what's the first thing that God did? God, for those whom God foreknew... What's the next link? He predestined. And then what's the next one? Look at verse 30. Called. Then he justified. And then he... Okay, now I'm gonna, we're going to have to do a little bit of grammar here, okay? And I think it's very important that we do that. Um, what... First of all, what, what part of speech are these words in English? I'm not, we're not going to go Greek, okay? We're just going to go English. Well, what part of speech, first of all? They are verbs, okay? So these are all verbs. What's a verb, okay? This is going to be real elementary. It's going to be action. A verb is an action, okay? Who is doing the action? God, okay. Those whom he, okay? So God is the actor. God is performing these. Okay, who is he performing these upon? Look at the wording there. All we have is a those, okay? Those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined. There's a, there's a those, okay? Or a, can we just put they slash those? So there's a they and a those attached to all of these verbs, okay? So... God pre God foreknew a those, God predestined a those, God called a those, God justified a those, and God glorified a those. Now, who are the those? We'll get to that in just a moment, okay? Foreknowledge. If I write the word foreknowledge, how is the word foreknowledge different than the verb foreknow? What's the difference between those two words? One is a noun, and one is a verb, okay? This text does not say God has foreknowledge. What does the text say? God foreknew. Now, would we all agree that God has foreknowledge of all things? He knows in advance, okay? But it's not here saying that God foresaw or foreknew something it says God foreknew a what? A they. So let's just kind of look here. What does it mean to foreknow? To foreknow in the scriptures does not necessarily mean that God knew in advance because God knows in advance everything. It really means to place an electing love on a those in advance. Okay? So let me ask you the question here that's on your sheet. If we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, and only God must do the miracle of regeneration, when he looks down into the future, what should, should be, um, what will he see unregenerate people doing? I've answered the question for you. Nothing. Okay. 
So let me ask you a question. Before we get to these terms, we may have to back up and ask a question and have a level playing field related to the sinfulness of man. Because your view of man or humans will determine your view of this. Remember about a month ago, I talked about the four different views of of depravity, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, Reformed. Can we all agree, at least, and again, you can disagree with me tonight, but can we at least agree that mankind is sinful? Can we agree that mankind is even dead? Okay. The question is, how dead is mankind? Is he dead or is he sick? Different views down the church history have different views on that, okay? One side would say mankind is sick. He's not totally dead. He still has the ability to choose. The other side would say, no, mankind is totally dead. He does not have the ability until God does something, okay? So each view that we look at assumes sinfulness. It's to what degree is man sinful? Is he sick or is he dead? If you take the dead view, you're going to look at this differently. If you take the sick view, you're going to look at this differently, okay? So when when we use the word for no, let me ask you a question. Does God know everybody in the world? Okay. So does foreknowledge mean, or God foreknowing just mean that God knows about everybody? Or is it something more specific? Look at that passage in Amos. Amos 3, 1 through 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, verse 2 says, Israelites, you're the only people I have known. Now, let's ask a question. Does that mean God doesn't know about the Egyptians? I mean, God doesn't know about the Amorites, the, the Canaanites? It just means that God knows the Israelites in a different type of way. The Hebrew word for know in the Old Testament is yada. Yada, yada, you know, from Seinfeld. Yada. Yada is a very intimate word for knowing. Okay, in Genesis, it said Adam yadad his wife and bore a son. Okay, I don't need to go any further, but yada is a very deep, intimate knowledge that goes beyond just I know a fact, it's I have a love relationship, in this case, with the Israelites that I don't have with the rest of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, whoever. So, when God says he foreknew of those, does it just mean that God knew what they were going to do? Does God know what everybody's going to do? So, here's the big question. Did God ordain a plan or did God ordain a people according to the grammar what does God do he foreknows of those he predestines of those it doesn't say God foreknew what people would do or what people would choose or that God put a plan in motion and people had to 
act upon that plan, it's very specific in the grammar that God foreknew a, a they of those. Now, can I erase this real quick and, and, and put... Well, let me not erase it, but let me, let, me, let me give you both views, okay? Here's the two views of foreknowing or foreknowledge. The first view is called the conditional view. The second view is called the unconditional view. Okay, here's the first view, the conditional view. This view states that in eternity past, before the world was created, God looked down into the future, and because God is all-knowing, He looked down and He saw what people were going to do, and based upon what God saw, He then chose based upon what He sees. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example. It's 1984, and Sally's at youth camp. And she is under the preaching of the gospel, and she hears a gospel presentation, and the evangelist at the youth camp calls for an altar call, and she goes forward and asks Jesus into her heart, and she becomes a Christian. The first view said God looks down to 1984 at that moment in time, and God sees Sally trusting Christ for salvation. And based upon what God sees her doing, God then says, okay, I'm going to choose her because I see her accepting me. If he looks down and sees Bobby not choosing, God says, I'm not going to choose him. So in the first view, who's more in the driver's seat? The person making the choice. God doesn't necessarily make the choice. He more ratifies the decision that he sees. You understand what a ratify means? Ratify means God basically puts a stamp upon what he sees happening. Okay? The other view states that, and there's conditions. The reason this is called conditional is because the person has to meet the conditions of believing, of repenting, of trusting, and then once God sees those conditions being met, then he elects or chooses based upon the conditions being met. Okay? The other view states that all people are sinners, nobody deserves salvation. Everybody's going to hell, and God, based upon God's own perfect will, decides to save some, a lot, and others he simply leaves in their sin, and they end up getting passed over. And so God gives mercy to some, and others he gives justice. In either case, does God show injustice? What's injustice? Injustice would be God doing something that would be unjust. Is it unjust for God to save people? Would that be unjust? No, that would be merciful. Is it unjust for God to punish sinners? No, that would be just. And so one of the misconceptions of the, the view of predestination is that God chooses a small amount of people because he saw something better in them. And so he decided to choose a small amount of people because they were just somehow more spiritually astute. That is not what the Bible teaches. Number one, does the Bible ever give a number of how many people God has chosen? He just says, in Revelation, we find out there's a multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, greater than the sands on the seashore. Okay? Does it ever in the Bible say God chose people because he thought they were all that? Does the Bible ever say God went eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a tiger by the toe, that person's blonde, I like him, that person's you know, brown hair, I don't. That per you know, does God do that? The Bible never answers the question. The, only, the, the Bible doesn't answer the question why God chooses. 
The only answer the Bible gives is that God does it for his own glory. But we cannot say that God did it because there was something inherently good in us that, that moved him to do that. Okay? So in this, th- those are the two views. Okay. Are there, I want to stop and, and, and make sure that you, and I think I'm going past my blanks here, okay? Because if, if, I, if I don't stick to the script here, just don't be so neurotic that I didn't give you the fill in the blank. I'll make sure. I just explained all that, right? Conditional election says that God predestines on the basis of conditions met by sinners. If sinners meet certain conditions, then they will be predestined. God looks down the quarter of time and sees who will choose him and who will reject him on based, based upon foreseen faith and acceptance. Then he ratifies the sinner's decision. Second view, unconditional election states that God chooses on his own pleasure and will for some to be saved and is not from any merit in them, i.e. a future choice or so. Okay. Are there any questions at this point on the two views? Because both views, regardless of which view you hold to, it happened in eternity past. In both views, God is foreknowing. But in one view, God chooses. The other view, God ratifies. Are there any questions, comments, or snide remarks before we move on? Okay. That's a wonderful, great question. You've brought up a question that is the, the $10 million question. The way you worded it, though, you, let me make sure I heard you, I heard you correctly, because you say, don't people have it, and I think you used the word, within them to choose. Is that the way you worded it? Okay. How do I want to answer this? Um, Let me make sure I understand your question because I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to misinterpret what you're asking. Are you saying that humans have the inherent ability within themselves to choose Christ or reject Christ based upon something that God has given them, i.e., free will? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, it's going back to you said Egyptians versus Israelites. Pharaoh knew that the Israelites had something better than him because of all the plagues and everything that came at once. But he chose not to go. I mean, I feel like just by my reading, and maybe I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. he could have chosen just like the Roman soldier who chose to believe in Jesus. Okay. And that's one and that's and that's and that's a very that's one of the views that's out there that God gives people the inherent ability to to choose when, when, when given a choice between. And so it goes back to your view of, it goes back to whoever's view, your view of man. Is man totally unable to do anything good? Or does man still have the ability to do that even though he's still sinful? So your view of human nature, I guess, would determine how you view that. Am, am I confusing you or... Okay. Yeah, and that's one of the views. That that's more on the other the first view he said that the Holy Spirit helps, the Holy Spirit gives enough of 
of, of that grace, but it's still ultimately it's up to you to make the choice. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and let me just stop here and say that where you come down on this view is not a dogmatic, like it, it does, it, it's not, we're not saying that your view on predestination and election is a make or break whether you're a Christian or not or whether you're orthodox. It's, it's a doctrinal issue, and so people can agree to disagree on these certain doctrines, and hopefully they don't divide. And so we're not saying if you, like I would, I would differ from your view uh, on that, but I would not say that, um, that we can't fellowship or we can't be in the same church or that, that somehow you don't have it all figured out. I would just say I understand it a little bit differently, and I think hopefully we have the freedom to be able to disagree. Does that? Does well, that... I'm not saying that. I'm just I'm asking. Okay, questions. yeah. I'm, you know, that's just, I was under the assumption that mm-hmm. people, like, like you as a pastor could minister to somebody who doesn't know. Sure. And, and, and if they choose to believe that way, they can go that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people still, people still personally have to make the choice to trust Christ for salvation. The question is, why do they do it? Does that make sense? Do they do it because they were chosen and God worked in them to do it? Or do they do it because God foresaw that they would do it and the Holy Spirit kind of helped them, but then ultimately it was up to them? Does, does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not really... An- if I answer the question the way I believe, I'm going to disagree with what you're saying. But, but, and hopefully that's okay. Is that okay if I do? Okay. I believe that man... I believe that humans are what we call dead in sin, which means that no person has the inherent ability within themselves to come to God unless God does a work in them to cause them to come to God. And that was determined in eternity past whom God was going to choose. In time, the Holy Spirit comes and works on that person and gives them the ability to choose and they personally make that choice to repent and believe in Jesus. That makes sense, but why would he create somebody that's not going to believe in him at all? That's another question that we're going to get to in just a moment because I knew that was coming. That's in Romans chapter 9. No, that's fine. So, no, these are good. Like I said, this is a hard, difficult topic that generates a lot of emotions. And usually, like when I teach this at, the, um, at CCU, I usually tell my class, you're going to get really mad at me after this because my job is to make you think. You don't have to agree with me. You don't, you don't have to agree with me. You, you, can, you can walk out of here and say, and I know Jonathan's back there nodding his head because we've had conversations. Of, we've had this conversation, and, and, and Jonathan's, you know, he grew up in a Nazarene background, and, you know, we, we've wrestled with this, and, but John and I are, are friends, and, you know, we're, everything's cool. You don't have to agree with what I'm saying. I just want to throw it out there as a way to make you think if you haven't thought about these issues before like kind of challenge you because when i hear you say i've always thought my point is well maybe maybe think about it differently and then you go to the scriptures and determine if it's if what i'm saying is you've got to come to that conclusion i can't i can't force you to do that so let's let's look at my um let's look at what i have written here in verse 30 all the verbs are in the aorist which means they're past tense okay so God foreknew, God predestined, they're all past tense verbs. So they happened in the past tense, okay? All of them are past tense actions. God is the subject, the elect are the objects, the personal pronouns, those. Um, here's the logic of the text. God set his elective love on some to be saved. These same people he predestined before the foundation of the world to be saved. Those who were foreknown and predestined, God 
called to salvation. Okay, so these right here take place in eternity past. God's foreknowing and God's predestinating take place in eternity past. But there comes a point in time when God calls those whom he foredoo and those whom he predestined, he calls them to salvation. Now, there's two types of calls. There's the telephone call. No, I'm just joking. There's the, <laughs> sorry, there's the outward call that goes out to all people. So, like, for example, when I stand up on a Sunday morning and preach, have you ever, in the seven and a half years I've been in Emmanuel, have you ever heard me say this from the pulpit? If you're out there this morning and you are among one of the elect, Listen, if you're not, don't. <laughs> Have you ever heard me say that? What do I say? If you're under the sound of my voice, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and believe. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. That's the outward call. I'm extending it to every single person that's out there. When we go to India, we don't pick and choose. We extend the call to everybody that's there. When our group goes to Moscow, they're going to extend the call. When we do personal evangelism, we extend the call to everybody that was in earshot, and we urge them to repent and believe. Okay, that's the outward call. But there's an inward call, which means that God, through the Holy Spirit, calls these those. <laughs> that's not very good grammar. God calls these those. God calls those whom he foreknew and those whom he predestined, he internally calls them to himself. Okay? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he also called. So let me ask you a question. Will there be those who are called who haven't been predestined? Inward call. No. Okay. Let's look at some scriptures here. This inward call can also be known by a different term. We call it regeneration. What happens when the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again? We call that what? Regeneration. He calls us inwardly. He does the work inwardly. He makes us alive. Let's look at some scriptures here. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what does that text not say? We have caused ourselves to be born again. Is that what the text says? No, it says He has caused us to be... So how does God cause us to be born again? How does that happen? Through the internal call. The Holy Spirit comes and calls to those whom He foreknew and those whom He predestined. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now let's just stop right there. What's the order of the text? What comes first, the believing or being appointed to eternal life? They were appointed to eternal life first, and as a result of that, they believed. So that's just another way of saying, appointed to eternal life is another way of saying for new predestined. So what happened? When the Gentiles heard this, what did they hear? They heard the outward call. So Paul, Silas, whoever's preaching, they hear the gospel. They begin rejoicing. They begin glorifying the word of the Lord because they believe. Why do they believe when that call went out? because they were appointed before time began. 
And God, in time, calls them internally to himself to give them the gift of faith to be able to believe. Now, let's look at an example here. Acts 16, 14. Here's an example of God doing an internal call to a person that hears the gospel. One of those who was listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. Now, a worshiper of God doesn't mean she was a Christian. It just means she was a God-fearing Jew who kind of attached herself to Judaism, but she was not a believer yet. What does the verse say? The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart. Did she open her heart? The Lord opened her heart, but what did she do? She responded. She listened. Now, there may have been others that were listening, and there may have been others who were there that the Lord did not open their hearts, but they heard the gospel message. Is it possible that you could go and witness to somebody time and time again and tell them the gospel and they never believe? Is it possible that you go witness to somebody time and time again and they eventually believe? Okay. So your outward call, the one thing you can control in evangelism is the outward call. Nobody's going to be saved without an outward call. Very rarely does God inwardly call people without an outward call. If not, then why, why do we send missionaries? If people are just going to be saved without, you know, with nobody telling them about it. Paul says, how are they going to hear? How are they going to know unless somebody sent and tells them about that? So, okay, here's what happens. Here's the order. In eternity past, God foreknew of those. He predestined to those. And then in time, he called to those. And then what happened? Uh, those, those were justified. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a long time about that. But um, this justification basically means that all of our sin was credited to Christ and all of his perfect righteousness was credited to us. And so God could look upon us as not guilty. So that, that happened. The moment, the moment that the internal call came, what happened? God opened your heart. God opened your eyes. You were given new life. You confessed you repented, you believed, God didn't do it for you, you still did it, you still made the decision. That moment that you did that, there was a justification, okay? Now, a lot of people will say, well, why should we go share the gospel with people? If people are automatically elected, then why go share with them? Does the Bible ever say people are automatically saved? They are elected unto salvation, but they still have to hear the gospel and believe in order to be saved. So here's the point of commonality between the two, the two views. Regardless of what view you believe, the one thing that we really need to focus on, I'd rather focus on this than the two views. Regardless of which view you believe, both views believe this. A person has to hear the gospel, a person has to personally repent, and a person has to personally face, place their trust in Christ in order to be saved. No one is saved without putting personal faith in Jesus Christ. So we can argue about, okay, were they elected? Was it their choice? You can debate back and forth, but at the end of the day, no one is saved unless they personally put faith in Jesus Christ. They believe. They hear. Okay? And, and the moment that happens, you're justified. Now, at this point, it's interesting. All of these are in the past tense. What is glorification? What is that theologically? It's what happens to us in the future. Now, why wouldn't Paul switch to the future tense and say, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he predestined, he justified, and those whom he justified, he will glorify. How come he keeps the past tense with glorified there? 
Has it happened yet? Have you been glorified yet? No. What Paul does here is Paul defies grammar in order to teach a truth that in God's mind it's a done deal. In God's mind it's a done deal that you're already going to be in heaven. You're already going to get your new body. Because it goes back to what God started in eternity past, God will complete in eternity future, it's a done deal. That's why he uses the past tense. Your grammar teacher probably would have counted, you, counted Paul off on that because it's a, it's a future tense type thing. Okay? Don, you were going to say something. You weren't going to say something? Okay. Oh, go ahead, Lori. Can I come over here? Come on, let me come over here with my microphone. See, yeah, you can say whatever you Well, I think what, for me, what I think of when I see that is that no matter which side you're going to believe, like you're saying, they have to hear, we get ourselves in trouble when we try to think, I mean, yes, God knows, but we certainly don't. No. So our job never changes exactly. no matter which side you're on. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, I think Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, of course, in Charles Spurgeon fashion said this. He said, it would be really great if God painted a yellow stripe on the back of all the elect, and I would go down London pulling up their shirts to see who they were, and I would just go preach to them. But he hasn't done that. So we preach to everybody saying that everybody's a candidate for salvation. When I look out on Sunday morning, I don't look out there and say, that person is probably not elect, so I'm not going to talk to them. Absolutely. I don't do that at all. Or if you're witnessing to somebody, you probably shouldn't play the game in your mind. What you probably should play, the, if you're going to play any game, is that God and His providence has given you an opportunity to speak to this person. Take advantage of the fact that you're sharing the gospel. Once it leaves your mouth, leave the results up to God. And keep praying for them, keep loving them, go back and, 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 and witness to them. But you're exactly right, Lori, regardless of which view you believe. And there's, 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 there's um, hyper views on each side. The hyper view on the, on, the, on the far predestination side says, well, if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. Don't need to go share the gospel. Don't need to pray for lost people. Don't need to send missionaries because if God's going to save them, God's going to save them. That's, that's what happened to William Carey. Remember, William Carey was the first missionary to India um, from England, and he almost didn't go because he was in a very um, predestinated-related hyper-Baptist church where the elders of the church said to him, don't go to India because if God wants to save those in India, he's going to save them. You don't need to send missionaries. And William Carey says, I can't believe that because the Great Commission commands us to go into all the nations and preach the gospel. And so William Carey went to India because he knew that they needed to be able to hear the gospel. So one hyperview is, okay, we're not going to do evangelism. We're not going to pray for lost people. If God's going to save them, God's going to save them no matter what. Does the Bible ever say God's going to save people no matter what? No. God clearly tells us God's going to save people by us preaching the gospel, making disciples of all nations, going into all the earth. That's how God does it. Now, the other view says, you can take the other extreme view, well, if it's totally up to someone's choice, and God doesn't intervene at all, and it's their choice, then we don't really need to go share the gospel with them because they're going to just make the choice. They're just going to, they'll eventually figure it out, and they'll, they'll, they'll have enough knowledge to be able to make the choice. And so either way you look at it, what's the one thing that you're being disobedient in? You're being disobedient in evangelism by not sharing the gospel. And so as opposed to getting all hung up in election, predestination, these are good truths we need to know, but if the, the, where the rubber meets the road is none of it should be an excuse to not do evangelism. Does, does that make sense? Or not do missions. Yes, <clears throat> Julie. If 
I'm only going to go to a foreign country, who first spoke to me about Christ? Or who's going to speak to my children about Christ? If we all took that extreme role in saying, well, God predestined, so God's going to choose you regardless of whether you heard. Yeah. I wouldn't be saved. I wouldn't be here. Right. Because somebody actually opened their mouth and shared the gospel with you. Right. So no matter what ground you're on, if it's a foreign country or local in your own home, you have to share. And you have to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And we'll get to, and and Paul makes that argument later on in Romans chapter 10. Um, Well, let's just go there real quick, just because we're talking about it. I wasn't planning on going there anyway in our study, but in Romans 10, um, let's start in verse 14. Well, let's go back to verse um, 13, Romans 10, 13. This is in the same book where Paul just said predestination, okay? So is Paul schizophrenic here or what's he? No, let's, he's not because it's scripture and it's inspired. Romans 10, 14, who, for whoever, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, okay? But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe on him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul's saying that people can't call upon the name of the Lord unless they hear the name of the Lord. How can they hear the name of the Lord unless someone preaches to them the name of the Lord? And how can someone preach the name of the Lord to them unless someone is sent to them? So what do we as a church need to be doing? Sending people to preach so people can hear, so people can call, so people can get saved. That's the progression. Okay? Now, I want to give you the order of salvation, or ordo salutis is what some people call. Um, If you put these, um, if you give these theological terms, you you get them in the biblical order here. There's there's differences among the the different traditions you're from, but this is kind of the way I see it. Number one, God foreknows. Number two, God elects or predestines. Then in time, the gospel call goes out, and then God comes and regenerates and causes you to be born again. Once God does that, He gives you the gift of repentance and faith. Once you repent and believe, you're justified. Then you're adopted into God's family. Sanctification is the process of growing, and then perseverance means you remain true to the end. You die, and then you're glorified. Okay? They're this, they're so, yeah, they're almost the same thing, but sanctification is more the process. I think perseverance is the end product. Perseverance, he who endures to the end. Perseverance means you don't fall away. You make it either till the, till the Christ comes back or you die. Well, how, so the perseverance part, I mean, you've gone through all this, and obviously you're going to persevere. Obvious, yes, and that's the doctrine that we're going to look at next. If this is a logical flow of election, then if you're truly elected, is God going like, to take, take out one piece of it and not let you persevere to the end? Is that basically the argument you're saying? If God has done all this, he, if God's foreknown you and God's predestined you and God's called you and God's justified you and God's in His mind's glorified you, if you're truly one of His, is He going to let you not persevere? And the flip side of that is no, we call that eternal security. Is that, that's where you're getting at, Sean. Isn't that where you're getting at? Okay, let's look at it next. Let's go back to Romans 8. Okay, then let's look at verse 31. Let's, let's finish Paul's flow of thought because we've got this golden chain that these are all linked together. 
So Romans 8, 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And, and, and the rhetorical, Paul in Romans asks a lot of rhetorical questions that he's expecting his listeners to answer. And so the question is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is, nobody can and let it stick. Now, Satan may come and bring a charge against God's elect, but it's not going to stick in God's courtroom because it is God who justifies. What does it mean God has justified? He's declared us not guilty on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Verse 34, who's to condemn? Nobody can come and condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Then he goes on and lists all these things. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are hyper-Nike. That's the Greek word there, more than conquerors. Nike, I don't know if you know what it means, conqueror, victor. More than conquerors is hyper-Nike. So Nike stole a Greek word from and used it to, for their swish. So um, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does Paul give a definitive list there? Anything that you can't think of, he adds at the very end there, anything else in all creation. Is there anything that's going to separate the, uh, who's he talking about here? He makes it very clear. It is God's elect. Those whom God has foreknown, those whom God has predestined, those whom God has called, those whom God has justified, and those in God's mind, they're already glorified. Can anybody bring a charge against them to get them out of this situation? And, num- and number two, can anybody come and separate them, separate the elect from what God has done? And Paul's making a definitive argument, absolutely not. And so we call that eternal security. Or in other words, you cannot, you cannot lose what God and His grace is going to keep you in doing. Did you have a, you had a moment? I'm just thinking that if it's based, it's unconditional love. So any kind of charge that He could bring about would be conditional anyway. It would be based off things that we would have done or not done. But His love, God's love toward us was not based on those things. It was unconditional love beforehand. Yes. That's what I'm thinking of. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes back to, you know, he already knew we were sinners when he saved us. You know, we, we weren't these perfect, righteous people that he saved. We were all sinners, and he chose to save us. Hmm. So I guess it's just, that goes back to, to what Don was just saying, you know. He didn't save us because we're good. Right. Let's let's stop right here, and let's make a, let's make a very... Um, let me make an observation. Should this, what we just looked at, if you, if you buy it, should it lead to pride or arrogance or a sense of elitism that somehow you were one of the special ones? No, absolutely not. It should lead to worship and awe and wonder that the God of the universe would dare do that to you. Here's what I pray a lot in the mornings. Nobody hears me because I'm praying to God, but... I pray out loud, by the way. And I do that just so I stay awake. This morning it was really hard to stay awake. Sometimes, quiet times, I get up and I'm like, 
Lord, forgive me because I'm falling asleep. And then, that, you know, could you not stay awake with me one hour? And I'm like, I can't even stay awake five minutes. I'm trying to pray here. But anyway, what I'm praying, a lot of times in the morning, and you don't necessarily have to pray this or don't have to believe this, but this is what, this is what motivates me. I often say to God, God, you could have very easily passed me over, left me in my sins, and would have been absolutely just in doing so, and sent me to hell, and I could not charge you with wrongdoing. But the fact that you chose to save me, I'm in awe of you today because I don't deserve it. I mean, because could God have said, Sean, I'm not going to do those things for you. And would he have been wrong? No, he would have been totally just and right in not doing those things for me. So for God to do those things for me does not lead me to boast. It's not lead me to, to become arrogant. It leads me to get to my knees and say, why me? And even Spurgeon said that. I don't know why I'm elect. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him. He says, I don't know why God chose me, and I don't know why God would chose me, because I know me. And the more I get to know me, the more I realize that God did something extra special when he saved me, because he didn't have to save me, and he did. So it leads us to worship. So these doctrines aren't just cold. You know, when you hear about the doctrine of predestination, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Really what it should lead to is it should lead to humility. It should lead to awe. It should lead to worship, and it should lead to confidence in your evangelism. Why should it lead to confidence in your evangelism? Because you know that if God is going to save someone, the pressure is off who? You. I was listening to a sermon today by Artaxerdia, and it was real, I might put it up online. It was really cool. He was talking about um, evangelism, and he was saying, we make it so hard. He says, we don't win people to Jesus. Jesus wins people to himself. All we've got to do is just present Jesus and let Jesus do the work. And so it's like, you know, you don't have to be a salesman. You don't have to be manipulative. You don't have to try all these techniques. Um, he also said one thing that was interesting. He said, one thing I can tell you from the Bible is that there's no one technique. It's not EE. It's not, you know, Roman road. That every, There's different ways of presenting the gospel. But the one thing you can know about in the Bible is there's not one technique. But the one thing that's consistent is that it always is bringing back to who Jesus is and what he's done and calling people to, to believe in that. So, all right. The logical conclusion of all of this is eternal security. Because um, if God started it in eternity past and God did it in time and God is doing it, do you think he's just going to be like, okay, I'm, I did all that, but then now it's up to you? Okay. All right. Do we want to tackle Romans chapter 9? I, I called it the most difficult chapter in, in the Bible. Do you want to tackle the most difficult chapter in the Bible? Yeah. How much time do we have here? <laughs> You're like, yeah, Sean, you set it up that way. Might as well. Um, and don't get mad at me. Just get mad at Paul. Because remember what I said about uh, the book of Romans? Paul is, is using some, he's a, he's a, he's a lawyer. He's, he's pre presenting these legal briefs these airtight arguments, and he knows there's going to be objections coming, either from the audience or from the other attorney. And so he ends up answering these objections because he knows they're coming up. And we're going to be answering these. We're going to be um, giving these objections when we read the book of Romans because we're going to be like, we'll read a section and be like, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, God. I object. And then Paul's going to be like, okay, I read your mind. Here's the answer to the objection. So are you ready? Here we go. Romans chapter 9. Let's start out in um, verse 9. Romans 9, 9. Okay, let's pray. 
as we move through this. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Okay, we've got to stop right there because we have a verse in the Bible where it says God hates someone. So I should just stop in your tracks right there and be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought God was love. Why in the world is God hating a person named Esau? So let's just write some words that we see in the scripture here. Let's do a little bit of a Bible study. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So he loved Jacob, he hated Esau. Now, some people will say, well, let's do a lexical study of the word hate and find out what it really means. So let's go get out a Greek dictionary and let's find out what the word hate means. And some people will like say, well, it, it means hate or it means love less. Either way you slice it, God is having an action towards Jacob that he's not having towards Esau. So in that one incidence, God is showing favor to Jacob and not to Esau. Now, let's ask the question, was it because Esau was a bad guy and Jacob was better? Go back and read Genesis. Who was the scoundrel in that story? Both. Jacob was no, was no more righteous than Esau, so it wasn't anything inherently good. We can't say Jacob was good, Esau was bad, so therefore God chose Jacob because he saw something good in him, and God hated Esau because he saw something bad in him. As a matter of fact, does the text tell us that? Look at the text. What does the text tell us in verse 11? Though they were not yet born. Okay, so when did this happen? Before birth, which means... It goes back to when is that election? It takes place before time. What's the next thing it says? Before they had done anything, either good or bad. So this is before any actions of righteousness or unrighteousness. So God's loving of Jacob and hating of Esau has nothing to do with their righteousness or their unrighteousness, good or bad, and it happened before they were born. Why did it happen? Let's look at, let's keep reading. What does it say? In order that, when you see it in order that in the Bible, it usually tells you the purpose of why. In order that God's purpose of what? Election might. So Paul is stating very clearly that the reason God did this The reason God loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were born, before they did anything good or bad, is because it was his act of election. And how more clear can you get? Not because of, why did God elect them? It was not because of works. It doesn't go back to something they did, but it was because of what? God's call. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, at this point, a lot of people will say, God is not talking about individuals here. He's talking about nations. Because Jacob was the representative of the Israelites. Esau was the representative of the Edomites. So Jacob equals Israel. Esau equals Edom. And so God is making what we call a national choice here. He's choosing Israel over Edomites. The problem with that is God does not mention nations here, does he? 
He mentions individuals. And let me just ask you a question. Does that help matters any more? What happens if you're an Edomite? <laughs> you're not Esau, but you're part of Edomite. That means that God still is not choosing you. And he's choosing Israel, an Israelite, over an Edomite. So even if it's a national election, it still doesn't get away from the fact that God is making a choice of some and not others. Now, what's our objection? What's going to be the objection? That's not fair. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What's Paul saying? You're objecting, saying that's not fair. God's being unjust. God's being unfair. By no means. God's not unfair. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, what is Paul saying here? God has the right to be God. If there's anybody who has free will in the Bible, it's God. God has the free will to do what God wants to do. God has compassion on whom he has compassion. God will have mercy on who he determines to have mercy. Now, in that statement, does it assume that God's not going to have compassion on some? Does it assume that? Okay. Does it depend upon human will or exertion? Does it depend on anything that we do? Back to this whole works thing. He's going back. Does it depend on our actions? Does it depend on our righteousness? Does it depend on our, our goodness, on what we do, even our faith? What is it, what's the total basis of what God is basing his election upon? What's the total basis? It's based upon God's mercy. Election is... God chooses to show, show mercy to some and to others. He leaves them in their sin and they experience His justice. But in no case can we ever say there's injustice. Okay, let's keep moving through here because Paul's going to give an example. Now, I'm telling you, guys, are you ready for this? Because you're going to get mad. But get mad at Paul. Don't get mad at me. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whoever He wills. Okay, so He's making it even stronger here. Pharaoh was raised up for what purpose? So he could harden his heart so that God could be glorified in the hardening of his heart. And God raised him up in His power to do that. And not only does God have mercy on whom He has mercy, it says here, God will harden whom He will harden. Now we've got to stop and ask a question. There's something called equal ultimacy. I'm going to teach you guys something here. This comes from R.C. Sproul and other theologians, but it's called equal ultimacy, okay? You've got the elect, and you've got the non-elect. To the elect, God shows mercy. To the non-elect, here's the question. Does God have to harden the hearts of the non-elect? Does He have to do that? No, because what's, their hearts are already hardened. They're already sinful. So God positively does something in the elect, even though they're sinful, 
all humanity sinful, God does something positive in the elect sinners by showing them mercy. To the non-elect, He simply just leaves them in their state of sin and they go the path of remaining in sin, which ends up being, you know, their own course. Does that make sense? God doesn't have... So equal ultimacy would say God works positively in the elect and he works positively in the non-elect to make them sinful. And we'd say, no, God doesn't have to work in the, in the non-elect to make them sinful. They're already sinful. Okay? Now, that's true except for, we have an example here of Pharaoh. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God and Pharaoh. If you go back to Exodus, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, but before Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. So, can we say, fear and trembling, shaking, that, and this is a scary thought, can we say that God has the power and ability to harden someone's heart against him? Yes, he did it with Pharaoh. Does God do that all the time? Even if he did, and, and we're going to keep going, yeah, because here's the next question. That, you're the, that's the question, you're the, the, the next objection. Well, who gives God the right to do that? Yeah. If God has mercy on whom he wills and God has, can harden whom he wills, well, who gave God that right to do that? That's the next objection here. Look at verse um, 19. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What is the objection? God, it's unfair. God who gave you the right. And Paul says, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You are a clay pot. God is the potter. Can you tell the creator what to do? And the answer is, no. At the end of the day, whether we like it or not, the ultimate answer is God can do whatever he wants because he's God. We may not like that. We may not agree with it. But at the end of the day, we've got to say, even if I don't understand it, God is still going to do what God's going to do. And we have... Glorified in it? Yes. Absolutely. I think God has to be glorified in it. Because if, God, because if God is not glorified in what he does, then that means there's a defect in God, which is really hard to think about. Because if there's a defect in God, he's not God. But if he does things for his glory that we seem as defective, either we don't understand God, which is probably true, or God is not who he says he is in the Bible, which is that we don't understand God. Okay. Now... This is, where, this is the hardest part of the whole chapter for me. Because we have a verse here that says that God creates some vessels of honor and some as vessels of wrath in order to make known His mercy. And this was beforehand. And I'm just going to leave that hanging because I think that's probably the most, the most difficult thing to deal with. Another thing, let's talk about this. Regardless of what view of election you have, 
Should you be cold and calculating and be like, well, that's just the way it is? Or should it move you to tears to think that there are people that are going to hell and we need to share the gospel with them? I've met some people that have the view of predestination that's very cold and calculated. It's very, well, that's the way it is. Deal with it. And there's no heart behind it. Um, I think that you see Paul. Do you see Paul with tears pleading for people to get saved in the Bible? Yes, he's the same guy that just wrote this letter. Do you see Jesus crying over Jerusalem? Do you see people pleading and urging and crying for people? Yes, I think that we have permission in the Bible, regardless of what view of election you have, we need to plead with people to repent and believe with tears. As Spurgeon said, I keep quoting Spurgeon a lot tonight, if they're going to go to hell, let them go to hell tripping over me grabbing them. Not because I didn't, it may be that I didn't pray for them or I didn't warn them. Um, now, look at verse 24. In case you didn't think it was national, let's go back. Okay, he's talking about nations here. He's talking about Israelites. He's talking about um, Edomites. Verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That just blew the argument out of the way that it was a national election. Because if it's national election, it would only just be this would only just be for the Jews. And Paul makes a very clear point saying, this is not just for Jews, it's for the Gentiles, those whom God has called. So God has called together a people to be his own. Any questions on the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of calling, the doctrine of all these doctrines? Any questions or comments or discussions or disagreements or um, heartburns or issues or um, I think this all goes back into what you and I have been talking about a lot. Okay. It makes you think and it challenges you to figure out and, and study into what you believe and you know that that's really what, what I am in is I'm readjusting a lot of life values and what I've learned in the past and this isn't something that you're just like oh one day I just changed my mind Okay, for me, it's something that I, you know, still do a lot of heartfelt heart looking into. And so if this isn't really, this is something you struggle with. This is something you should really hit the Bible about and look into this stuff and really dive deep into it and become a lot more firm into what your belief is. Mm-hmm. And so that really makes it more of your own. And taking something and making your own makes you that much stronger mm-hmm. in what you believe. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether you, where you sit in all this, I mean, this would just be kind of a challenge. That's what I have. Notes of challenge. Right yeah, notes of so challenge. Yeah. So the areas that I'm still struggling in, it's like, okay, let me look this up. Let's go look at yeah. this. And, you know, and I think that's really what, out of this, what we should take. This yeah. is the reason why I love this class. Yeah. And I have never, in my history of being in the ministry, have never sat down with the person and talked them into these views or told them that they had to believe this. I was a youth pastor, so I had a lot of, I had a lot of influence. And I remember, because I was, one of my youth called me last night. He's 26 now, and he's in the Navy. And he's like, I got a theological question. So I like, talked for half an hour. And, you know, he's like, I remember that night in youth group when you rocked my world. And I'm like, I remembered back to that night in youth group where I thought I was going to get fired because my pastor didn't believe the same way I did. And I'm like, this person asked a question. I'm like, okay, do I lay it all on the line here? And, and so you remember that night, don't you, Don? I maybe don't remember that night. But I, like, I answered the question. And I think there was like a silence across the room, and everybody was like, I never thought about that before. And then after the class, the student came up to me and goes, now what did you say? 
And I said, listen, I'm your youth pastor, and first and foremost, you need to submit to your parents. So if your parents don't believe this, you don't want to cause issue with your parents. You need to be submissive to your parents. I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but I'm going to ask you a few questions. You go to the scriptures, and you spend a month, and you come back and tell me what you've discovered. That's all I did. And he came back to me about a month. He's like, I've totally changed my whole view on life. What in the world have you done to me? And so he like totally, like, like you said, Jonathan, he took the, and I would much rather a person take the painful journey of discovering the truths. And then if they come up with something different than what I've come up, Lord bless them because they've taken the journey. At least they can stand on and say, this is what I believe and why. Um, if they don't take the journey and they say, I don't believe in that because I haven't, you know, because they have prejudices or whatever and they haven't taken the time, I have a little less, I don't want to use the word tolerance, but I have a little less, um, well, maybe tolerance or patience. I'd rather, maybe that's not a good way to put it. I'd rather, I think the role of a pastor is to challenge the sheep to be able to go be like the Bereans and find out from the scriptures what they believe and why because there's going to come a day where I'm not going to be there to hold your hand or I'm not going to be there to answer a question. You're going to be in the thick of the battle or you know you may move or I may move or something may happen. Are you going to be able to articulate? Because these views come up. You can't live the Christian life long enough without the doctrine of election at least coming up somewhere. Because if you just do a Bible study in one of these books, the word's going to come up and, and people are going to be freaked out. And, and the worst thing you can do is we're going to skip over that because we don't want to deal with it. How would you like it if on a Sunday morning I stood up and like we're doing verse by verse? And hey, you guys remember I preached the Ephesians about three years ago. And like, you know, right from the get go, it's like, OK, we're just going to skip over this and start in chapter two. How would you guys feel about that? You'd be like, number one, he hasn't studied. Number two, he's a coward. Or number three, he doesn't want to stir up controversy. All three of those are bad for a pastor. If I haven't studied, shame on me. If I'm a coward, shame on me. And if I don't want to cause up controversy, shame on me. I've got to preach the text and just lay it out there and let the controversy come. And if it comes, we move on. Um, And so any Bible study you're in, any time that you go through the Scriptures and these these truths or doctrines come up, you're going to have to figure out what you believe about them. and, and, And don't base it on... And it's hard not to base them on emotion. I think that's where a lot of people are at. They're at that emotional level of, I don't want to believe these things because I have a family member, or I don't want to believe these things because this is not the way I grew up, or I don't want to believe these things because I'm going to have to adjust. I remember when I first really understood God's sovereignty, I was in my office as a youth pastor, and I got really mad and threw my Bible across the room. I was mad. And I just was like, if this is who God is, and I've discovered what I believe God is. This, this, this changes everything that I've grown up to believe. And you remember when I came home, Don, and I... Well, I remember because Sean used to... Sean had written a paper. Okay, this is how Sean works. In his spare time, he wrote a paper, like In a college. dissertation about why that wasn't true. Like all the things that we just... The arguments against it. And then slowly as he was just becoming more familiar with the language and all that stuff, it, it just changed. But I can say that Sean is better, not better, but he's a person of deeper worship since that has happened. I've, I've seen that change. But I remember one thing that Don said when I came home one night, and I'm like, I, I'm like this is who God is, and I don't like it. And what she told me, she's like, whether you like it or not, Sean, if this is who God is, you have no choice but to submit to it. And I was like, 
thanks a lot, wife. But no, I'm just joking. No, I was very thankful for that moment because, because, I mean, I was weeping in my office because it was like a paradigm shift of everything that I learned. And it was almost like, if this is who God is, I'm going to bow and worship. And, I, and it was like the floodgates opened in me. It's something I can't really explain it, but it was, it was a very painful process, very painful. But I wouldn't trade it because I think, like Jonathan said, it took me through the, took me through the pain of, of, of discovering that. And I think everybody should go through that pain. <laughs> if you haven't gone through it yet, go through the pain. If you've grown up that way, and I think sometimes our kids grow up with this and they don't go through the pain of it because I think children accept these things as not a big deal to them. You know, but um, some of us who are conditioned as adults. But anyway, I think it becomes a big deal when they get outside of our homes, though. I mean, you know where we've been out with one of our kids, and mm-hmm. watching that path of no longer believing, and yeah. it throws you out like, oh, you know. So that's a pain. That's you know. Huge. We still pray that he comes back, and he. Mm-hmm. I think that is where the pain of the whole thing is because no matter what side you believe you know that there will be people who don't go to heaven and how did that happen was it their choice was it God you know was it because they were passed over did they just never choose it we talked about it with 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 Zach like if we didn't if we thought that it was just that you choose, Zach would have no hope. There would be no, because he can never, he will never understand that message, and he'll never be able to make that choice. So he's lost. He would have been passed over, you know. So somebody is being passed over. And, and that's the hard part of that, because all of us have hearts for people. And I don't know if that's because we are Christians, that we have that heart. Because maybe the non-believing world doesn't care. Like maybe they just truly don't see that, and they don't ache over things like, like we would as believers. But as believers, it hurts our hearts. And you know, I don't. I we were just talking before dinner. How do you reconcile the hurt in your heart with knowing that somebody is going to go to hell, and you can't, you can not, you can either not talk them into it, or you can't change that they weren't elect. And, but either way, they were, they're lost, and that's not, does it not make us happy? And we all have members of our families, and mm-hmm. we have members of our communities that we know mm-hmm. that are not mm-hmm. going to heaven, but uh, if they died today. But we do know that there's still the chance of, yeah. like my dad has been rejecting the gospel his whole life, and he still rejects it. <laughs> he, he knows where he stands with that. Mm-hmm. But he's not dead yet, and so I guess there's still hope. I mean, there's right, still and we hope. look at and you look at the example of Paul. I mean, Paul was he calls himself a blasphemer, a violent man, a murderer, the chief of sinners, and God got through him and and, and changed his life. I think the hard part is, okay, you see two truths in the Bible, and how do you reconcile them? Because you see both these truths. You see the doctrine of predestination, and you see the reality of hell. Because the Bible teaches both. I mean, you, you, it talks about the sheep and the goats. It talks about hell. You see hell, but it also talks about predestination. How those two fit together, you can theologically put your ducks in a row, but on a, an emotional level, it still hurts to think that there are people that you know, if they don't trust Christ, they're going to hell. And yet there's a doctrine of election, whichever view you, you look at it. So I guess it goes back to what's the one thing we can control? the sharing of the gospel. We can share 
we can preach, we can teach, we can plead. Let's just turn one place to first uh, to Second Corinthians. Um, and I didn't want this to be a bummer tonight, but um, you know, I, I think Paul. Remember, this is the same Paul who just said God made some vessels for wrath and some for honor, and God hardens people. This is the same Paul. Okay, so let's let's balance Paul with Paul, and go to um, First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians chapter five. Verse 17, we're very familiar with this passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which means our job is to be those that preach Christ so that sinners can be reconciled to Jesus. Verse 19, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you. We implore you. What does your translation say? We beg you. We implore you. We beseech you. We urge you. With tears, with crying, with everything in our being, we urge you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think what I want us to hear when we leave tonight is we are agents of reconciliation, we are ambassadors, and we need to have the heart of Paul to plead and urge and beg and, and, um, and cry for people to be reconciled to God. Knowing that some may not and some may but it doesn't mean that we should lessen our, our urging. Does that, does that make sense? Um, we, regardless, you know, there are some churches that, you know, if they, they hold really heavy to the doctrine of election, basically there's a mentality among them that, you know, we're the frozen chosen, and God has chosen us. God has elected us. You know, we don't need to do missions, we don't need to do evangelism, we really don't need to do nothing. We're just a happy little club and let's just kind of coexist and wait for Christ to come back. That's disobedient because the Great Commission tells us to go into all the world and make disciples. And it emboldens our discipleship, or it emboldens our evangelism. Um, because if, if it was up to me every Sunday to stand up and make people come to Christ, I would cry and crawl in a corner every morning and not get in the pulpit. Literally. Because that's, number one, too much pressure, and I can't do it. And if I can talk you into it, somebody can easily talk you out of it. And so, you know, like, you know, David, when we went to, um, to India, I mean, think about, there were some times where, you know, you're standing at a village in front of all these Indians that come, and, and you're translating, and, and you're looking there, and, and if you've thought in your power, I'm anything, I mean, when you guys were teaching that Bible story, I mean, you're thinking, to you, at least I'm thinking to myself, I am a white person from America. I am nothing. I can't even, I mean, I have to speak to a translator, and I'm in this village out in the middle of nowhere, and these people are Hindu, Hindus and, and worship their ancestors, and, and we're in front of this well, and I'm telling this well story, and I'm telling them about Jesus. If for some reason I thought I was all that and could get them to come to Christ, I would be very, I would be like sunk. But I trusted that the moment that I, and, and we didn't see any. I mean, you didn't see anybody like, I'm going to trust Jesus. You know, they said, the, the tribal chief said, we want to think about this. This is, this is something we need to think about. The guy on the porch that Heath witnessed to, 
you know, that guy started getting a little, little animated and it was like kind of arguing with Heath. And, and so that kind of got there. I mean, when you talk to your friend, there's those times where if it, if it was up to you to convert a lost person, you're going to lose every time. But if all you do is love them and share with them and plead with them and obedient, let God do the work. And even if it seems hopeless, God can do a great work. Don't ever, don't ever think that this doctrine is hopeless. This doctrine is hopeful because if, if it's going to happen, God's going to do it. It's not going to be you. And you know it's going to be lasting. Okay. It's kind of cool when I go to this. This is my favorite sweatshirt to wear to school. The kids are always like, who's Mr. Wright? And I'm like, Jesus. And they're like, oh, you go to church? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so then that... Mm-hmm. starts that conversation a little bit with them and stuff, but they always question this sweatshirt. Who's Mr. Right? <laughs> the devil's Mr. Wrong. <laughs> 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 I, I, I want to, I, 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 anytime you talk about this, there's always like this feeling of, ooh, this is the first time I've heard this, I'm confused, or ooh, I don't like that, or ooh, I'm worshiping, or ooh, ooh. <laughs> I just want to make sure there's not an um, emotional travail. Well, maybe there, there should be an emotional travail as you leave this place. I guess what I'm just trying to say is don't feel like you have to embrace this lock, stock, and barrel and be um, like all notched up with it, like airtight. Like, this, like I believe this. I would rather you like struggle with it um, if you haven't already. Does that make sense? And just come to your own conclusion. All right, we didn't get much. Well, let's see. Where are we going to go next in um, Romans? Romans 9, we've only got four minutes. We were going to do Romans. Well, we'll finish next week. We'll, we'll finish out Romans, and we may move into 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians gets real fun because you've got the most dysfunctional church in, in the Bible, and it gets really interesting. So we get to see you know Christians having incest in the church and nobody doing anything about it and lawsuits among believers and people you know, abusing spiritual gifts and having their super apostles and their fan clubs and all that kind of stuff. It'll be fun. <laughs> You're like, I don't know about that church. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's, let's pray. And um, if you have any questions or any issues, um, you, know, you can always email me or talk to me. I, I want to be available because I know this is a lot of heavy, heavy stuff tonight, but I, I think, you know, Romans is a heavy book. And, and, and like my old minister of music said, it's like Prego. It's in there, and you can't... <laughs> not deal with it if it's in there so you can't just skip over it so yeah 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 so let's pray father we come before you tonight and we are humbled that you are the master potter that you have created us you've fashioned us you mold us lord you have called us you are sanctifying us and lord in your mind we're already glorified we're already seated in the heavenly realms we are already um, in heaven in your mind because of what you've done through Christ. Lord, help that lead to humility. Help that lead to um, evangelistic zeal. Help that lead to pleading and praying for lost people. Help that to increase our missionary desire to go to the nations. Lord, help it not be an excuse to be complacent or to be prideful or to be arrogant, but Lord, let it fuel our worship so that we can go share with everybody on this planet the love of Jesus Christ, knowing that you're going to do a great work and that um, your word does not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.